Oh, hello and welcome. My name is Coach Yo, and welcome to my cycle class. I hope you're ready to roll. Oh my goodness. I wonder how this is gonna go. I ran track, but like, I don't know, this is, oh, here we go. Hey everybody, welcome. Let's get ready to cycle. I just ordered a pizza, so let's wrap this up in 30 minutes or less. Here we go. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you wanna quit. Well, I'm here to tell you today is not that day. Instead of slowing down, we're gonna pick it up. Let's go. Come on, doing the best I can. Oh, I'm trying my best. I got these obstacles in my way. I'm trying to run them over. I just don't feel like I can make it. Are you even listening to me? Oh, my Amazon package arrived. Sick. Come on, everybody, two minutes till pizza. Keep it moving, keep it moving. Pedal for that pepperoni, baby. Pedal for that pepperoni. It's time for the final push. I know those legs are tired, but here we go. Pushing it to the end in three, two, one. Well done, young guns. You made it through class, but I'm here to let you know. I want to see you back next week. King Uzziah had been the king in Jerusalem for 52 years. Many of the people in Jerusalem had only known him to be the king. And during his reign, it was a time of great stability and a lot of success. Uh, things around Jerusalem were expanding. Construction was on the move. The economy was booming because Uzziah really cared about agriculture, and many of the people benefited from that. And the military was strong. And so for the people living in Jerusalem, these were good days. And then King Uzziah died. And with his death came transition and so much uncertainty. And it was in the midst of that uncertain time that God spoke to his prophet, Isaiah. Now, we know a thing or two about living in uncertain days. For many of us, we've been going through 18 months of uncertainty, and just the last few months, it's felt like maybe things were getting better, and maybe this pandemic that we've been in was going to come to an end, and now it seems that maybe more uncertainty is ahead. And in the midst of uncertain days, in the midst of difficult days, I personally really struggle with a question in my spiritual life. Maybe it's a question that you've wrestled with as well. The question is, where is God in the midst of all of this? I mean, we know God is powerful. We know God is strong. We know God is in control. And so oftentimes I'll wonder, why don't I experience more of that? Why don't I see more of that? Where is God? Or, or maybe we'll ask it this way. We'll say, why don't we experience more of God's power and more of God's presence? Now, of course, we experience God's power and his presence in certain ways or in certain moments. Maybe it's a great church service or a time of prayer or, or a reading. But the question that often I will struggle with, especially in uncertain days, is why don't I experience more of it? Why doesn't that happen on a regular basis? And with that question, I wanna welcome you back to our series, Bust Your Butt. Throughout this series, we are looking at all the excuses, the things that get in our way between us and experiencing all that God has for us in our lives. And this weekend, we are going to look at a but that every single one of us have, and it's a but that the prophet Isaiah realized he had when he was trying to find God in the midst of uncertain days. And so in the midst of those uncertain days, God gave a vision to the prophet Isaiah. This is something that he just experienced in, 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 his, in his life, and he records that for us in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up or turn it on and keep Isaiah 6 with you. We're going to experience Isaiah 6 today. And not only are we going to read the text and understand what God is saying to us through the prophet Isaiah, but these words are so powerful. And this experience was so rich for the prophet Isaiah that, that I think just doing words and talking about it wouldn't really do justice to what this experience was like for Isaiah. So just like Isaiah experienced something in this vision, I want us to experience this as well. 
So today's message is going to be maybe a little bit different from what you would normally expect with the message. It won't just be me. I've worked with our creative team to interject some moments of intentional music and reflection throughout this message. This is going to feel more interactive for you and and more like an experience. Now, here's my commitment to you. We're not going to ask you to do anything weird across any of our campuses or any of our venues. And those of you that are joining us online, this will be a great time of worship and reflection. But I want to invite you to step into Isaiah 6 and to experience it like Isaiah experienced it. And here's how that experience began for him. One day he was enraptured in this vision. God came to him and gave him this grand view of where God was at in the midst of uncertain times. It's recorded for us in Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So the first thing that Isaiah sees in this vision is he sees God in the temple, and he's seated on a throne. And that's an interesting place for God to be, isn't it? I mean, God's not on the clouds. God's not lounging on a couch somewhere. God's not on a chariot. He's on a throne. Why is he on a throne? Well, because whenever a king would be on a throne, it was a sign that they were in control. They were overseeing their kingdom. They they were ruling that kingdom. They were actively involved in what was happening in the kingdom. And so in the midst of this uncertain time, the vision that God gives to Isaiah is, I'm here and I am on the throne. In fact, we see that God is enthroned above all of creation. That's a message that we see all throughout scripture. Uh, Let's look at where we see that God is on the throne. In Psalm 24, we're told that the earth is the Lord's. The the entire earth, everything that that we know to be true on earth, it's God's. That everything in it, the, the world and all who live in it, because he founded it. He established it on the seas and established it on the water. God is the creator God. He's over everything. Folks, in the midst of uncertain times when it seems like the whole world is, is, is kind of coming unraveled, we just need to know God's on the throne. It's all his. He created it. He's above all of it. And the psalm goes on to tell us in Psalm 29 that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord, it's powerful. Did you know that? The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. And the image there that we get from the Psalms is how God is sitting on his throne above floodwaters. In this time, the ancient Near East, they, people of that day viewed the waters as a scary place because the water was all filled with uncertainty. If you've ever been to the shore and experienced waves crashing in on you, or if you've ever been to a lake and, and had some, some waves from maybe a boat or from a storm come at you and you just feel their power, it makes you feel really small and insignificant because you realize that it doesn't take much water to overcome you. And if you've ever been knocked over by a wave or if you've ever fallen into water when you didn't intend to, it's a helpless feeling. And that's how the ancient Near East people thought about water. Whenever they wrote about it in literature, it was a sign of chaos, it was a sign of uncertainty, and it was a sign of something that was more powerful and beyond them. And what the psalmists are telling us here is that God himself is above all of that. That regardless of how difficult days are, regardless how uncertain things are, God is in charge and in control above that and over that. The the image that God is giving to Isaiah is in the midst of confusion, in the midst of difficult days, in the midst of chaos, know that I am on the throne. What a great message of encouragement. Often in the midst of uh, the middle of the night, my young daughter, she's eight, she'll wake up. Something will cause her to, to wake up from a deep sleep. And in the midst of her waking up in the middle of the night, she'll call out to, to her parents. She'll call out to us. Because in the midst of that kind of scary and uncertain time, right, in the, in the darkness of her room and in the quietness of the middle of the night and that uncertainty of what's going on around her, she wants to reach out to somebody who's more powerful than she is. And so she calls out. She calls out for the person who is the strongest person in our household. She calls out for the person who is the bravest in our household. She calls out for the person who has the least fear in our household, the one who has the most authority in our house. She calls out for her mom. But sometimes she gets me. 
And when I walk into her room in the middle of the night, it's enough. She just wants to know that I'm there. My presence is all that she needs. She doesn't need an explanation about what woke her up. She doesn't need a light in the middle of the darkness. She doesn't even need to know how many hours until daylight. All she needs to know is that I'm there. That's what God's sharing with Isaiah, and that's what God is sharing with you today. In the midst of your difficulties, you just need to know God is there, and he is in charge. And not only is he there, he is there in all of his majesty and all of his power. The image that Isaiah has is this robe that is so big, it fills it the temple. And the temple was like the largest, most impressive building that the people would have known in Jerusalem. And even God's robe fills up that space. In 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was named Queen of England, and as she walked out of Westminster Abbey after having been crowned queen, she wore this robe with this impressive train behind her. Uh, This is this beautiful purple robe. It's six yards long, and the length of it is to show how powerful and how majestic and and, and how mighty she is as, as the queen because she had all these servants that had to carry it. It was just a sign of her authority, and this is impressive but it has nothing on God's train of his robe. His is so big that it fills the entire temple. And he doesn't have servants carrying it. He has a whole host of a worship experience that's happening around him. Here's what Isaiah's vision goes on to. Uh, Above him were seraphim, this is above God, each with six wings. And with two wings, they were covering their face and with two, they were covering their feet and with two, they were flying. These are these heavenly creatures. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. What an incredible scene. And what the seraphim are calling out is holy, 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 because that's how God is being described. That's who God is. That God is holy. Holiness just simply means it's, it's something that's set apart. It means that it's different, right? And what the seraphim are declaring to us is that God is set apart from us. He's not like us. He is holy. You know, one of the dangers that we can run into in our spiritual life is the belief that God has become our buddy. Listen, God is not your buddy. He's not like you. He doesn't think like you. God is certainly our friend. We know that from scripture. And God is our father. And God is for us, but he's not like us. And the attitude of of God being my buddy is is that I just assume that God's gonna do everything that I would do and that God approves of everything that I do because he's my bud. And, and that's, that's not a good or healthy way to view God. And ultimately what that will lead to is spiritual disappointment. Because when God doesn't act like you think he should act, you, you start to question who God is. And so it's so important that while we recognize that God is our friend and our father and he's for us, that God's also holy and he's set apart. And we need to become like him. He's not like us. So how do we have that proper view? We have that proper view through worship. Because it's in worship we declare what is true about God. And it's in worship that our, our minds, our hearts, our, soul, our souls become aligned to the truth of who God is. And it gives clarity to us about the confidence that we can have in God who is different and set apart and above the things of this world. And that time of worship is so important for our souls. In in fact, I'm concerned that that there's so many people that that are just so casual when it comes to worshiping God. They don't take it seriously. It's it's like we'll get to worship once a month or every six weeks or whenever it's convenient for us. No, no, it's through worship that that everything in, in our world comes back into clarity and into its proper purpose because we acknowledge who God is and that he's set apart and he's set above. And what we see from that vision from Isaiah is that when God's presence is there. Creation can't help but respond. Even the doorpost reverberates in the presence of God. Folks, I don't want us just to read those words. I want us to live those words out. And so what I've asked across all of our campuses and all of our venues right now is that we would worship God through music. That we would worship God, that we would take this moment right now in response to this text, and and we would do what those seraphim are doing. That we would declare the, the majesty, the might, the holiness, the awesomeness, the goodness of our God. Because it's in that worship that, that our souls become reminded about what is true regardless of our circumstance. 
So I wanna invite you right now, wherever you are, to join us in this experience. All campuses, all venues. So I'm, I'm literally, I'm gonna ask you, would you stand to your feet right now? Our, our teams are, are coming out and they're gonna be playing some music and I wanna invite you to give God your best in this moment. To, to declare through your voice what is true about God, his holiness. Let's worship him together now.
of worship like that are so good for our soul, aren't they? It's just that moment to clarify what is true and and to be reminded about God's power and his might. But in the midst of of that worship, I have to be honest, I I come back to that question. Because it's, it's in worship that we recognize and we acknowledge God's power and his presence. And then I wonder, why, why is it that God's power and his presence is an experience on a more regular basis in my life. I mean, why is it that I have moments here and there, but this isn't a regular occurrence? What what is it? What what is getting in the way? And what's getting in the way is a but that's in every one of our lives. And it was a but that as soon as Isaiah recognized and saw who God was in all of his holiness, he said, but God, there's a problem. He actually didn't say, but God. He said, woe to me. Let's look as the passage continues. Isaiah says this. He says, Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And that word ruined is a harsh word, isn't it? I mean, ruined is is big. I mean, when something is ruined, it means it's broken beyond repair. It means it is dirty beyond the point of being able to clean. Ruin speaks of something that once was but no longer is. It's it's like the image of a once majestic castle that now is inhabitable because it's in ruins. What ruined Isaiah? And what ruined him was the but in his life that stood between him and God. And it's what ruins us. It was our sin. For Isaiah, he, he saw his sinfulness in response to God's holiness. And that's a problem because of what sin does. Sin causes things to die. Here's why. Because God is life. And sin is anything that's against God or against God's will for our lives. Anything that's a violation of God's commandments or God's instruction or God's heart, it's sinful. And that sin is death because God is all about life. Not just that God has life, God is life. Did you know that God is the source of all life? In fact, we read this in scripture about God and how he's life in 1 John. It says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life because God's the source of all life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Scripture is really clear. If if you don't have a relationship with God, you've stepped outside of life, and stepping outside of life is stepping into death. And so let me just say this for a moment. For any of you who may be exploring faith or, or you're curious about religion or you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, I don't say this to to scare you or or have a fear tactic or anything like that. I just want to be really honest and very truthful with you. What God says about your condition right now is that if you are outside of relationship with him, you are outside of life, which means you're in death, spiritually speaking. And if you continue in that spiritual state of death, when your time on this earth ends, you will continue for all eternity to be separated from him and to live in that place of death. And for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, that is no longer true for us. We are now in relationship with God. And so a a spiritual death is not something that we experience. And that's good news for us. However, we still have moments of sin in our lives. And sin still causes things to die. But you already knew that. You already knew that because when someone lies to you, there's a little bit of trust that you have between you and that person that dies. And even after they ask for forgiveness and you have forgiven them, that trust never fully comes back to life, does it? 
Or maybe if you're a student and you cheat on an exam and you get caught, your hope of a good grade, it dies. And if you cheat on an exam and you don't get caught, a little bit of your self-respect dies. Or if you're someone who is caught up in viewing pornography on a regular basis, listen, your image of healthy sexual relationships dies. Sin causes things to die. And that's the problem with sin. It's a death that we choose because we step outside of God's plan and God's best, which is life. And that stepping away from life, it separates us from God. And that's the but in all of our lives. It's sin that separates. So God is on the throne, but our sin separates us from God. Isaiah 52, uh, 59.2 says, but our iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And it's not so much that God is doing that as a punishment for us. It's that when we choose sin, we step away from God. We're not in a relationship with anymore. Or Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The consequence of living in sin is death. And it's a, it's a choice that we make. We choose to embrace death. But that's not what God wants for us. Because the passage goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, God doesn't want us to stay in our sinful state. He doesn't want us to stay experiencing death. That's why God says this in Ezekiel 33, to, to des describe for us how, how passionate he is about us returning to life. He says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Did you know that? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want anyone to die. He is life. It says, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That's what God wants. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And we could say, why will you die, people of God? God doesn't want us to experience and suffer the consequence of sin in our life. He doesn't want that death to continue to work away at our soul or our relationship or in our spiritual life. What God wants is for us to turn. When we turn from sin, there's a term for that that God uses in his word. It's called repentance. And it just means to, to repent. It means to go a new way. It's to turn from the death that we have been embracing, the death that we have allowed to be manifest in our life, and to return to God. And that process of repentance begins with confession. It begins by acknowledging to a holy God what we have done that's been against him and to be specific about it. For Isaiah, he specifically identified that he was messing up with his mouth. And we don't know what he was messing up with. Maybe he was a gossip. Maybe he was lying. Maybe he was cursing or, or, or using God's name in vain. We don't know but we know that as soon as he saw the presence of God, he couldn't help but contain it. He had to confess it. How about you? What sin, what death still lives within you? How's your mouth? Are the things that come out of your mouth worthy of a holy God? How about your ears? Are the things that you listen to worthy of a holy God? How about your eyes? Are what they look at worthy of a holy God? What about your thoughts? Are they worthy of a holy God? What about what your hands have been doing? Messages that your thumbs have been typing, things that your fingers have been writing. Are they worthy of a holy God? If not, this is our moment to confess them to God. Because in response to his holiness, we have to turn from our sinful ways, to turn from death. And that's an opportunity I want to invite you into right now. So in the quietness of this place, you'll hear some music that's played, but I'm going to invite you to sit in the stillness of this place and to silently, quietly before God Almighty confess specifically your sin to him.
One of the great promises that God gives to us is that the very moment we turn back to him is the very moment that he meets us. It doesn't matter how far away from God you have gone. When we turn, God doesn't expect us to come all the way back to him in order to meet us. No, no, God meets us right at the moment of turning. So right as you confess your sin to him, he meets you there. That's what he did for Isaiah. As soon as Isaiah confessed his sin, immediately God responded by sending one of the seraphim to him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God meets us right in that point of confession, right in that moment of repentance. And he covers over, that's what atonement means, our sin. This is the atonement is what God does on behalf of sinners like you and me so that we can be restored in relationship with God. It's an act of God on our behalf. Now you may be wondering in that scene that Isaiah describes there, what's up with this altar and why a live coal and what is, what's the symbolism behind all of that? And for Isaiah, this would have been very meaningful for him. He lived in the days of the temple. This was before Jesus. And so before Jesus, people would come on a regular basis as an act of worship to God, and they would need to make sacrifices to God before they could worship him. And that was because of their sin. They needed to be reminded that something had to cover over their sin in order for them to be in relationship with God. So what the people of God would do is they would take an animal, an animal that they took from their own herd. These were an agricultural society. So it would be a bull, a young bull, uh, or it would be a, a ram. This is an animal that would have cost them something, not only in terms of raising it, but also its potential value for them. I mean, as a farming community, these bulls and these rams would have been useful in, in producing a larger crop and yet they're, or, or herd, and yet they're going to sacrifice it to God. And so they would take that animal to a place called the altar. And then there they would set the animal on the altar and then they would take their hands and they would place it on the animal. And that was symbolic of them by saying that this animal is taking my place, that it's going to suffer the consequences of my sin so that I don't have to. The animal was being substituted for the people. And then it was there, the animal was killed and then burned on the altar. And so anything burning from that altar was a reminder that something had to die to cover over sin. And so for, the, for Isaiah, he's reminded of that, that something had to be sacrificed in order for atonement to be made. But here was the problem with the people of God. Their hearts were just never fully after God. 
And so day in and day out, year after year, time after time, the people would have to make sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, but it would never allow their hearts to become aligned with God. And that was a frustration for him. In fact, in 1 Samuel, we hear God kind of de declaring this, or the, the prophet Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? See, God doesn't love sacrifice. He wants obedience more. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The problem was that there was never a sacrifice that was good enough to cover over and make permanent atonement. And so God provided that atoning sacrifice himself. He came himself as Jesus, who came to be that perfect ultimate sacrifice. Because Jesus wasn't somehow disconnected from humanity, he took on humanity. And so he became able to be our representative. And Jesus was a perfect representative because he lived his life with no sin, just like the animals that the people were supposed to sacrifice had to be animals without defect. It had to be something that was costly. So Jesus was the most costly sacrifice of all, and it became our permanent atonement. That just means covering for our sin. So we know that God is on the throne, but our sin has separated us from God, and the good news in all of this is so Jesus became our atonement. And we, we hear this in, in John 1.29. This is when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says this. He says, uh, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you've ever wondered why Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God, it's not because he came as some fluffy, cuddly character. He came because he came to take our place, to be substituted on our behalf, to take the punishment for our sins. And then 2 Corinthians tells us this, it said, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, perfect, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is where God gives us now this exchange. See, Isaiah saw it. Isaiah recognized that God made a way for him, that God provided atonement for him. And God has done the same thing for you and me. God has taken our sinfulness and he's saying, I will take that upon myself and then I'm going to give to you my righteousness. Which means when God sees you, he sees you as if you have never sinned. He sees you as he sees Jesus. And that means that Jesus has become our atonement and God has removed our guilt Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. That is true of you. And if you've accepted Jesus, that is, that is absolutely true of you. And every time we confess our sins, we are cleansed of, of any unrighteousness. And that's what 1 John 1.9 tells us, that if we confess our sins, which we just did, then God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God has just done that for you and for me. He has purified us from all of our unrighteousness. That now when God sees you and me, he sees us as people who are in a right and a perfect standing with him, able to have full communion and full access to God. That is now true of you. And folks, that is worthy of our worship. That in the midst of that, we have to declare to God that we are receiving that, 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 that we are now living in that. That even though we may not feel it, we, we, we may be sorry for our sin, what God declares to be true is now true in our lives. And I think that is worthy of us telling God, thank you. It's worthy of us responding. And, and so as we come to the conclusion here of, of this section of Isaiah, it is appropriate for us once again to respond to God through worship and music. And so once again, across all of our campuses and all of our venues, I'm gonna ask that you would stand again to your feet and once again declare to God what is true. And, and don't just sing these words, but use this as a moment of declaration to God to say, this is now true of me because of what you have done, God Almighty. And I just wanna say, thank you. And I'm gonna give you all of my worship. And it lifted my compass. Shame was my reality. Fear became my closest friend. Till grace appeared in my defense. 
sense of being in a right standing with God, that sense of of now receiving God's righteousness, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, is a moment that's worthy of our worship, but it's also a moment that reminds us of what brings us to the table. Because it's in Holy Communion that we remember that this is true of our lives. It's in Holy Communion that we are reminded that Jesus became our sacrifice, And he did that through the elements that we take in communion. So I want to invite you to have some elements with you and to use this moment to say thank you to God. To use this moment to not only say thank you because of what Jesus has done for you, but also to use this as a moment to remember that you are now in God's family, that you now have a seat at his table. 
because of what Jesus has done for you. And so let's take this opportunity to be reminded about the atonement that Jesus made for you and for me. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he was having dinner with his followers. And he took bread and he told them, this is my body, which has been given for you. Do this in memory of me. And it was after supper that Christ turned his attention to the cup. And he said, this is, the cup represents my blood. It's, it's a new covenant between you and God. Do this whenever you drink of it in memory of me. Let's drink together. This time of communion, it's a powerful reminder for us of what we just experienced through Isaiah 6. And it's through this moment of communion that we begin to realize the answer to that question that we began with. The question is, why don't we experience God's power and his presence on a more regular basis? And what we were reminded of is that God's on the throne, but our sin separates us from God, but God became our atonement. So our guilt has now been removed and that leads us to the final step. It's a step of action. It's a step that because now we have been incorporated around God's table, having a seat here at his table in communion, in fellowship with God, that now God invites us to be part of his work. Immediately after providing atonement for Isaiah, God sent him. And immediately after Jesus provided atonement for us on the cross and after his resurrection, he sent his disciples. And folks, that's where the power of God was most prominently experienced. Look at those passages. Isaiah 6 says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And this is Isaiah speaking. He said, And I said, Here I am, send me. And Jesus, right after making his atonement on the cross, then Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, that same vision that Isaiah had of God on the throne, that's Jesus. He is on the throne. All authority in heaven and earth is his. He's on the throne. And what does he do? He says, therefore, because of that, in response to having the right view of me, go, and make disciples, that's other followers, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And here it is, don't miss this. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Where is Jesus? He's on the throne and he's going with his people who are living on mission. And that's where the power and the presence of God is experienced when we live on mission to tell other people about Jesus. That's where Isaiah experienced the power and the presence of God when he lived out his mission to go and, and be the, the mouthpiece for God. And we will experience more of God's power and his presence in our lives when we commit to his mission. And in this way, Isaiah 6 actually gives us a great outline to follow in our own personal worship experiences with God. It's an opportunity to be reminded about who God is to confess our sin to him, to give him thanksgiving for the, the, the removal of guilt and, and the righteousness that we've received. And then it's to ask God how we can go live on mission. And when we do, that's when we experience God's power and his presence. And what we find is that when we go and we live on mission, it starts to change our plans. And our plans needing to be busted, I'm gonna tell you all about next weekend. We'll see you then.